BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors. Hello, my name's Dave Green, and this is a special highlights podcast from BAFTA focusing on advice and ideas for new filmmakers. Coming up, we've got the do's and don'ts of pitching short films and features. For me, he made a mistake because he said, because I think it was brilliant, dogs on the estate, everybody is worried about dangerous dogs, dogs. and then he went, it's not a comedy. Yes. Now, whether it is a comedy or not, all horror has comedic elements. How writers, directors and producers get the best from their often complex collaborations. My favourite was Brian Gilbert, who said that micromanagement is the death of creativity. And I think that's a really important thing to be aware of when working with a writer, about giving the writer that freedom to work. And even when you've made a film, how on earth do you make any money out of it? Our experts lead you through the intricacies of selling movies in the UK and abroad. That's all coming up after this theme tune fades to a satisfying conclusion. Let's imagine I've just got back from the New Filmmakers Market, a day-long public BAFTA event, part of the Rush's Soho Shorts Festival, packed with screenings, roundtable discussions, CV surgeries, and nearly nine hours of panels on the many challenges facing new filmmakers today. I ran around like a kid in a candy shop, stuffing my distended brain with more insights than any human could realistically assimilate. So thank goodness I've got some guests here to help me and you make sense of it all. So with me in the studio is Nick Powell, Director of the National Film and Television School and Chair of BAFTA's Film Committee. Nick, uh, can you give us a quick overview of some of your industry credits so far? I don't know about a quick overview, but uh, my most recent credits before I started at the National Film and Television School, that is as director, were Ladies in Lavender, Little Voice, Backbeat, and if you go way back, we're talking Mona Lisa, Scandal. Uh, and that's mostly as, as, as executive game. producer? Mostly as exec producer, some as producer. Fantastic. So also here is Julia Short, who's head of acquisitions for the Works Film Group. What, what will people know you for, Julia? I have come into acquisitions, which I will talk about later, actually from a film marketing background, and I was responsible for the marketing in the UK of train spotting, four weddings and a funeral. Spice World was probably one of my highlights of my career, I hasten to add, um, and Mr Bean, so a number of very high-profile British films. And representing even newer filmmakers, uh, here's Karen Hope, who's a writer and director who took part in one of the day's most exciting sessions. So, so Karen, how, how did you arrive where, where you are? I'm a, I'm a writer, and um, in recent years I've been moving into directing. So um, at the end of 2010, I directed <clears throat> excuse me, a short film called Buongiorno Sayonara, which is now on the festival circuit, and uh, it's been an at 35 festivals so far and won a number of awards. Oh, that, thank, thank you for pronouncing that. I was, it was, it was here, in the, here in the running order, but I'm glad, I'm glad you took that one. So uh, one of the most popular parts of this BAFTA day was called The Perfect Pitch. And, and Karen, you were up there on, on stage for this. Could, could you describe the setup a little bit? Yes, it was, um, it was a bit of an artificial setup, quite scary, but that was all part of the challenge because uh, there were five of us whose projects were selected and we each in turn had to get up on the stage in front of the audience and in front of six panellists and we had five minutes to pitch our project and then the panellists had ten minutes to give feedback and ask any questions. So I, I, can, I can picture it in, in my mind but uh, we've got one of the pitches now so it's to give everyone a bit more flavour. My name's John Hayes, I'm a uh, writer and 
One of the things that I'm interested in is making horror archetypes relevant for a young, modern, urban audience. And essentially the project I've come to talk to you about is called Dog Boys. And it is, to put it very simply, a werewolf on a council estate. Got them going. It's not a comedy, but thank you. I'll take that one. I grew up on a council estate, and one of the things that I remember always, and I see it constantly, is dogs. Everyone on a council estate has a dog. Everyone has a pit bull or a staff or a Rottweiler or something like that, and it drives me completely crazy looking at people with these fighting dogs. I've seen people be attacked by them. I've seen people in the park get chased down by them, and I know people, unfortunately, that have used them as a weapon, and it terrifies me. So the story is about an ex-gang leader called Marcus who returns to the council estate that he once ruled, the reformed character, or so he thinks. When he comes back, he has only two things in his mind that he wants to do, which is reconnect with his ex-girlfriend and actually somehow come to peace with the world that he was once a part of. She doesn't believe him when he returns, but she still loves him. So in order to prove to her that he really is changed character, he goes to find the gang leader who's taken over from him and say to him, I no longer want any part of this world. I am no threat. But the gang leader, Tyrone, doesn't believe this, chases him down, puts the dogs on him, and he's ripped to pieces. He wakes up in hospital, drifting in and out of consciousness, and he hallucinates that he's being chased by something, some horrible creature through the concrete spires of this estate, something that's hunting him down, something that feels or looks like a pit bull, something huge and terrifying. And he makes a pact with it. He says to it, if I live, and it eats his heart. He wakes up in the hospital, a changed man. He goes to the bathroom, stumbles in, and in the bathroom, he's overcome with pain. Something inside him is trying to fight its way out, screaming in agony. He falls to the ground, and that's where he's found. No one can see what's happened to him, but he feels that something inside him has changed. So, I mean, that's just two minutes of uh, a writer, John Hayes, pitching his idea for Dog Boys. Is that how pitches actually happen in the real world, uh, Nick? And what, what, what sort of things do you look for? Well, first of all, I should say I think that uh, John, if it's the John Hayes, is maybe a graduate of my school, but I think it's a great pitch. But and there's, there's another three minutes of it as well. So it's, well, uh... I think he, maybe he should stop it there. I think he's, he's got us. He don't think he needs another three minutes or maybe additional time to put the elements together, like who's acting. Da, da, da. But so I think it was a good pitch, but I hate the whole concept of pitching. I think it uh, misleads people. I think that uh, when people are taught, and it's absolutely, I'm here being heretical here, I would not be allowed in the doors of the BFI to stay this. But, you know, uh, pitching is basically vomiting over someone. And that's not how you sell things. Anyone like me who's been selling things since I was like 14 years old knows that's not how you sell. You sell by seduction. You sell like you pick up someone in a bar, which I've had a lot of practice, but not in the last 20 years. And you sell by drawing someone into your world. And the way you do the best way to do that is to get to understand them. So actually, they should be doing most of the talking, the person or people that you're pitching to. Initially, you should feel out what parts of what you want to talk about, getting them interesting. How many times have I seen colleagues of mine talking to this person who is brain-wise asleep? You can see the eyes have glazed over, they start to roll, and they just keep going. Pitching is about forming a relationship with someone, maybe in a, in a minute or two, 
I, I once sold a movie to, uh, I'm a big Arsenal supporter, big gunner, and the guy that I was selling to was a massive Spurs supporter. So this was extremely difficult. Uh, we had to I had to talk about Spurs for 25 minutes of the 30-minute meeting. I promise you, I was the one that was feeling sick. But I had five minutes to sell a project. I did sell it, and, and we got our $5 million for it. So, you know, it's, to me, the, the thing that they had, it's a, it's a good exercise, but it's nowhere like near, near life because you're never going to be pitching a project to 300 people or 100 people or 50 people. You're normally going to be pitching either to an individual or a group of individuals, and that's a whole different thing. On the other hand, you know, I think it's a, it's a great exercise, good for confidence. It's very good for people to sort out their ideas and what they think is important in their project. But otherwise, it's complete bullshit. Well, that's your view, Nick. Uh, Julia, do you agree? I think the one thing I'd like to back up, you know, one of the notes I just read listening to John's pitch was I thought he came over as exceptionally passionate, which I thought was very commendable and clearly knew what, what he was wanted to write. I think Nick's right. I think as an industry, we're a relationship-driven business. So it's a question of... It's like having a first date when you first meet filmmakers, it's do I like you, do they like me, do we have things in common, are we on the same page? Because if you're going to continue working with these people, you've got to want to go down the same road and achieve the same things for your projects. And I think Nick's absolutely right, is sometimes it's a dialogue-driven, it's a two-way conversation, it isn't just somebody sitting there talking at you. I tend to have read or watched material before I meet somebody, so, uh, Karen, so what, what did you take from, from the experience? And you, you were on last, so did you adapt your pitch according yes, to the I kind did. of feedback that... What I would say first was I agree with both those, you know, the points that Julia and Nick have made because I have had a previous experience of pitching many for TV and it's exactly as you describe. You go in, you have a conversation. It is about a relationship. It's about feeding off each other. What I think the value is for this type of event is the project that I have, which is called Lady Killers, is is fairly well developed. And this is an opportunity to get some fresh perspective on it because you can get so close to material. Going back to your point about adapting your pitch, what happened was I was I was on last and I realised that the panel actually wanted much more of a flavour of how what the director's vision was, that meant that I very quickly rethought how I was going to actually present the the pitch to give much more of that, that flavour. And I think that's really essential. This is what you know, what we're all saying, really, that you, you can't just go in with something that you've learned by road, just, you know, vomit it out, as, as Nick was saying. You have to watch for responses, listen, see what people are interested in, and then explore more of those byways it's interesting now isn't it because i mean one of the things if you are going to do pitching like you you have to i think the exercises are really valuable so i'm not saying i'm just saying in real life that's not really how it works but one of the things i find in those is is only maybe one out of five or one out of ten ten will actually attempt to entertain and make laugh the audience and you know i say to my students you make a, a funny grad film you'll be hired immediately I mean, you're, you don't worry about your career. You know, if you can make your pitch funny, even for a serious subject, people have got to kind of like you, and they kind of think, oh, 
there's something special that has actually made the audience laugh, even though it's Hamlet. Although, you know, Hamlet's got a couple of jokes, unintended ones in it. So, you know, those are things I remember being flirtatious in a funny way with a big American studio executive, you know, trying to get one of these relationships going. But I completely messed it up because what I didn't realise was I'm going in there, dinner, da da da, barring a joke a second. What I didn't realise was that the other executive sitting next to her was her boyfriend. So I never got the deal. I think the thing that is useful about pitching is distilling your idea. What will be a 90, 100-page document is being able to kind of distill it down into a short summary of what the key points of the project are. Because from a marketing point of view, coming from a marketing background, is that's effectively what people come out and talk about. You know, it's a water cooler sentence is you don't spend half an hour describing to your friend what the film was like you go oh it was the comedy with teddy bear you know for ted you've got to be out i mean that's kind of really distilling it into something very very simple but john's pitch is you know it's dogs on an estate simple it's a really simple i get it so actually, I think the exercise is really good in terms of distilling it down to what its core elements are. He did make so a I mistake, though, didn't he? Because I think, for me, he made a mistake because he said... Because do- I think it was brilliant. Dogs on the estate, everybody is worried about dangerous dogs. dogs. And then he went, it's not a comedy. Yes. Now, whether it is a comedy or not, I would have left that sentence out. Yes. Because a lot of us, you know, for all horror has comedic elements. So if it's going to be a horror genre film... You wouldn't say not comedy, even if it doesn't have any comedy in it at that point in time that he's pitching it. Now, the other thing I'm thinking that I think is absolutely fantastic about pitching exercises is I'm a huge believer of telling your stories out loud. So to tell it out loud in front of a crowd, you know, you really find out you don't need them to tell you. You don't even need to see their reaction. You just feel this is not working. I thought it was going to work, but it's not. And I, and that, to me, is, is like a test screening. You don't actually need the questionnaires. It's like you can really feel from the crowd elements of your story, or indeed whether the whole story is getting any kind of appeal. And it's like T- Tarantino was saying in his BAFTA lecture, actually, that uh, you know after he's written a scene, he calls up a mate and he acts out the scene to them over the phone. But he's not interested in their opinion. He just wants to to act the scene out in front of an audience. And because he's got two girls in his house, he doesn't really want to leave it. So, you know, I just believe in that telling your story out loud at every possible opportunity to in front of as many people as possible, because uh, you'll feel whether it's going right or wrong. It's, it seems like you've come round to the whole idea there, Nick. That's brilliant. Uh, so you can, you can hear the rest of the Dog Boys pitch. and uh, As an exercise, not as a way of selling the movie. OK, <laughs> that's your point Two to take. Two different things. You can hear the rest of the Dog Boys pitch, Karen's five minutes of Lady Killers and all the other pitches and expert feedback in handy bite-sized chunks on the BAFTA Guru website, bafta.org slash guru. <laughs> So, having the right combination of writer, director and producer all working together is crucial to a successful production. There was a session on this called The Special Relationship, probably because it's notoriously difficult to get right. You often hear a lot about writers receiving notes, but what about people who are dishing them out? Here's Brian Gilbert, who directed Tom and Viv and Wild. Part of the process I found throughout, this is, I think, universal in my experience, in working with every kind of writer under very different circumstances, I always used to give myself the note 
Don't overreact when you read a draft that comes in. Read it and then read it again. Never respond immediately without taking thought. Because all directors, everybody in movies, we have strong opinions, we have strong ideas, we're reacting, especially a director, you're, you're reacting to the movie in your head, and you're actually not often, I've found myself, I wouldn't be seeing what was there. So I always have to take thought, take a step back, read it again. So before giving notes, I would always try to see what the writer has genuinely given me. That's not immediately obvious, I have to say. A great deal of the discussion is thematic, is character, is trying to find, and, and particularly for movies, is, is trying to externalize, trying to find those incidents and moments which reveal those actions that, that are somehow very fruitful and revealing. That's the tough stuff. It's very, very difficult to do that in film, I think. But it's what film demands. The fantastic voice there of, of Brian Gilbert. Uh, he's is, got a very like fabulous voice. He's, yeah, he's, he teaches at this a lot at the NFTS, and he's just a fantastic person. This is, you know, one of the key relationships that, to be honest, I had very little knowledge of. And the degree of pre-production that Brian and the... And the uh, yeah, I was thinking when Brian was saying, well, I always read the script twice, I say, well, good director has time to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us, you know, we've got, got to read it once. But I absolutely agree. Think before you speak goes with anything in life, not just notes. And it's very easy to miscommunicate the wrong thing if you don't give it proper thought as to what you're trying to do. And, and I think it's really important as a... You know, I'm a great believer of not giving the writer, or indeed the director, but, but certainly the writer, solutions. You can suggest a solution, but, you know, they may well have tried that solution and upset something else down the, down the road. So you identify the problem, you talk about it, and then they go away, and then they, they think about how they can deal with that. Because I've noticed with a lot of people giving notes, they get, they, they've got their, when they get the script back, they've got their notes beside them, They've got their script, and they're looking to see how many of their notes were incorporated into the script, and it's a pure ego exercise for me. And as uh, Terry Gilliam said, never let your ego get between yourself and the film. Uh, Terry, I think, particularly coming from Terry, I think that's a very good thing to say. So I do think he's absolutely right. Communicate clearly, be sensitive. People have worked weeks, months on these scripts that you're reading, sometimes years, a lot of work gone into this stuff. You know, I find it incredibly disrespectful when I hear certain people talking. And those people, they don't have good relationships with writers. Writers are, you know, producers' bread and butter. There are some astonishing stories in, in, in the rest of this session about, about people receiving conflicting notes, people receiving just simply pages and pages well, of notes. Well, that's another job of a producer. Gonna, I was going to say, historically, I've always worked, when I had my own distribution company, I worked... and. For some bizarre reason, every single director we worked with wrote the material they worked with. So they were all writer-directors that we worked with. I think I'd be quite intimidated of having actually having a meeting with a writer because I can barely write a sentence, let alone a script. So I'm in complete and utter awe of anybody. But I found it much easier talking to writer-directors where you're looking at the whole film and you, and I can pick out things that aren't working for me, but I don't go through and break down a script. I didn't go down and break a script. But recently, in my current role, we were one of eight financiers on a project. And I was very surprised that in the post-production process, this was, but I'm sure this obviously happened during the script process, was 
that the eight different finances were sending in separate lots of notes. This was a f- two brothers, first-time Dyer feature directors, who were getting notes in from eight. I just could. I was staggered. It's a, it's a producer's job At, to collect all the notes from the different people I involved and put them into one. Exactly, then get everybody I, to approve that's it. That's what I naively and then you give assumed was happening. And then when I found out, oh, we had a slight query about the ending of the film, and they go, oh yeah, but you don't agree with the Australian distributor. And then we've got so and so. And I'm just thinking, it's also a producer's poor. job to say, especially in that situation, to less experienced people, to say to them, if you're an experienced producer. These particular notes are rubbish, so don't pay any attention to them because I, I know yeah, this person and they're as stupid as I mean, hell. I but I'd you've have... got to pay attention to these yes. because they're either very powerful yeah. or you know we've got to find a way to deal with them because if we don't, either the project is messed so, up editorially. So the thing for me, from you know my little experience of it, is actually just having information coming through one route and for all the right reasons that those notes are coming in for all the right reasons because I think, as Nick said, there are egos involved in some instances. so Most just instances. Having... I mean, something else that comes up within this panel is that people say that every project is different. But at the same time, Karen, are, like, are, the, are the ways that you prefer to work when you're writing or, or you know, if, if you're being a writer-director as well? I've worked in a number of different ways. So as a, a writer, I've had experiences where I've had multiple notes because there have been multiple party, parties involved in financing. If it's all been channeled through one person, it's fine. But when you get conflicting notes, that is just impossible to deal with. You just have to, you know, you have to stick to your guns. You have to find a, a, a through route because inevitably you find your own way of solving something which might, might be completely contrary to the notes that you've had. But that person will say, oh, fantastic, that's great. I'm really pleased you took on board what I said. Not having realised that if you'd taken on board what they'd said, you wouldn't have got to where you were. So I think writers have actually got to be much more confident about their own vision. What was very interesting was that recently the producer Sarah Curtis did um, a Q&A for Women in Film and TV and this audible gasp went round the room when she said, producers are terrified of writers because uniformly writers are so lacking in confidence about meeting with producers, about discussing their work. To actually hear a producer say, it's a terrifying experience for us, it totally changed their perspective on the on the process. One of the reasons, that, again, this is, this is mentioned uh, within the session, is that writers are often worried about being fired off projects. And I don't, do, do you have any advice in, the, in that sort of field? Is, is that something that you can have any control of if, if you're a writer? or Well, it's something that I'm often on both sides of the fence because obviously as a director of the NFTS, I'm very often advising our graduates, really, or, you know, to, to how to construct things so that doesn't happen. I mean, I'm a great believer that if you choose a talent or a talent comes to you with something, you really push it, to, you know, two, three hundred percent before you give up. And sometimes it's better just to release the project back to the person because it's not something that, that we, you, Julia or me, can go with. And, uh, in fact, talking about Sarah Curtis's husband, Ian Softly, where he wasn't writing it, but uh, we couldn't raise the money. And my partner, Stephen, wanted to... We had a clause where we could fire him off the project after a certain period if we hadn't got financed. But Steve wanted to ask him if he would leave it a bit before to give us a bit more time. But he refused. I got a lawyer's letter... And uh, thank God I did, because about 30 days later, I got the money for it. 
I mean, Steve got the money for it and the film went into production and made his career. My thing is work with people until you're really exhausted before you change. Try and make sure you choose the right people in the first place. I don't think Sarah fires anybody at all off the scripts, but it can happen. And Juliet, uh, like, so presumably there are more, there are, there are far more unproduced screenplays um, out there. I've than had there are. to fire editors far. I've fired far more editors than I've fired ever fired writers. So that's good odds. It's not <laughs> even the editor's fault. <laughs> they didn't shoot the movie or write the script. <laughs> so I have no ex- no. I, I'm absolutely the same as Nick. Is that I think once you've bought into a project or whatever stage it is and whatever role you have is that you act, I think you have a fundamental responsibility to work with that person till you've absolutely got it as far as you possibly can and I think as Nick says possibly better to just give the project back to the writer if it's not rather than it getting fired yeah, that's a lot of money but yeah but in terms of advice the main the biggest piece of advice is make it expensive for them to fire you That's the thing. And don't assign rights. They'll all say to you, you have to assign the rights to us. But actually what you do is give them an option, which they can exercise if they pay you money. So at least if you get bloodied, you come out with with money in your pocket, you know. And it also stops, especially poorer producers, from firing you because they can't afford to. If you've written it, you own it. As soon as someone pays you, they own it. So the best thing is to accept as little money as possible, preferably just option money, so that they have to pay you a lot of money, you know, if it goes into production or if they want to fire you. Not easy to do. Use a good lawyer. There's there's much more advice in the in the rest of the session, in, including an, an amazing scenes of, of a breakfast with Tony Grizzoni. I can't remember what project that was, but uh, check, check out the, the, those other podcasts to hear more about it. One of the things that I took away from the day overall is that even when you've got the backing and assembled the crew and actually made a film, to a certain extent, it seemed like the challenge of getting it distributed and getting people to see it and getting money back then only really begins. So, Julia, what's the best way to go about that? It's too late at that point. You are completely, you know... The the ship has sailed by that point. If you're only thinking about about it at the end, you're too late. I mean, it was great in that in that pitch we heard, clearly very much thinking about how they're going to get the film out there. And certainly every film since myself and Stephen Woolley's very first film, Company of Walls, you know, we, we absolutely are planning how we're going to take this to market. There are certain decisions we can't make until we've either got the script or then got the film or then done the post. But, you know, we've got it kind of mapped out like a railway station. You know, and we're driving out to our train and we don't, don't know sometimes which crossroads we're going to take. But, you know, way right down to which, when the film's going to be delivered and therefore which festivals are going to be best to take it to, if we're going to take it to a festival at all, because it's not always good to take things to festivals and filmmakers, because they've got egos again, they want their film in Cannes or Venice or something. So you've got to control all that and say, no, it's not good for the film. Julia, so it, do you feel there's still, there's currently a thriving international market for British films? Certain British films, yeah. I mean, I think there are comedies difficult to travel, but then, you know, by the same token, we're not huge consumers of German comedy. You know, it's a very nationalistic comedy kind of genre. I think there's a kind of slight miscommunication in the industry with regards to low-budget films, because just because a film has a low budget does not mean it does not have international potential. 
And if you look at something, um, the protagonist Slate, who've done a lot of the Warp films, and you look at Gareth Edwards' Monsters, and you look at Street Dance, well, it's not low budget, but it's relatively low budget first in both terms was. of studios. Yeah, the first one was. Is actually, they have huge international potential because they're genre films, they're very clear on who their target audience is, and they're made for the right amount of money. The smart producers, as Nick will agree, is make the right film at the right... It's the right film at the right budget. What you can't afford to do is to make a small, specialised art house film for a lot of money because it just doesn't stack up. We just need, you know, fresh, new, exciting ideas. I think we don't... You know, we're very good at rehashing the same old, same old, and, and I would love to see some fresh, new, original stories coming out of the... UK. I thought Jeremy Baxter uh, from Protagonist was was on this panel and and made the point that like you know for instance at Kill List that is is almost perceived as an art house film in this country they were able to sell internationally as, exactly as, as and that's low budget yeah, exactly so that's low budget but it doesn't you know I don't want the people that are listening to this to think that you know there is money to be made in those films because they can sell internationally. So something else that emerged was that you shouldn't be too obsessed with getting festival screenings or DVD sales. Uh, this is what Carrie Fitzgerald from High Point Films, who are a sales company, had to say about that. I also think you shouldn't forget television. It's a huge market. I'll just use quickly an example of a film that we had called Extraordinary Rendition. And the filmmakers had made it more or less on their own money and it was very low budget. And they bought it to us and we screened the film and really liked it and they came to us because they needed the money to blow it up to 35. You know, when you're selling a film, timing is really, really important. And they came to us just before a big screening <coughs> event we have in London, called, which is run by Film London, called the UK Film Focus. And we said to them, don't spend any more money. Just let us screen it at this screening event, where, which is an event in London where all the buyers from around the world are invited to screen British films. We had a fantastic screening. It was completely packed in the NFT one. But all the buyers came out and said, we absolutely amazing film, but we don't think it's big enough for theatrical and we couldn't put the P&A money up for a theatrical. So we sat down with the guys again and said, look, you know, this is absolutely clear. Let's sell it to television and we have a TV division. So one of the first deals we did was with the BBC. They screened the film just after Newsnight, just after a Newsnight discussion about rendition and then they screened the film afterwards. So these brand new filmmakers had more people seeing their film by going out on BBC Two at kind of a very good time during the week than if they'd actually had a, a very small theatrical release. So lots of terminology in there as well. P&A, I discovered, stands for prints and advertising. You, you knew that, of course. But blowing it up to 35? <laughs> you mean blowing it up to 35? But 35 they must have shot, I'm guessing they shot yeah. it digitally yeah. and they wanted to output to 35, which you don't... You need to do less and less. You need unless to you're do on a very less and less release. and you have to... It tends to be... And certain festivals. Unless apparently it's in France, yes. Everyone else is using DCP. But moving on, moving on from all, from all this jargon. Yeah. So, Karen, are these marketing issues things that you bear in mind at an early stage when you're working on a project? Yes, increasingly. And uh, there have been any number of events which have been aimed at filmmakers recently, which are all about focusing everyone's minds on sorting out your audience even before you've you've started your project. Um, there's a um, guy from the States called John Rice, who uh, he, I don't know if you might have come across him. His whole pitch, he runs regular workshops, he has a book, is all about identifying your audience and then kind of working backwards to work out what your budget 
is likely to be for the project because exactly as Julia was saying you have to think about filmmaking as a business it's not just about getting out your vision your piece of art it's actually okay if I spend this amount of money on it I might make this amount back if I spend double that then I might not make any money back so I, I think this this kind of event is very good for giving filmmakers a reality check in a positive way because as we heard from that clip it can widen your outlook in terms of thinking oh okay well maybe there's there's potential for it to be actually become a tv project uh, rather than a rather than a, a, a film project maybe the kind of subject matter they've chosen doesn't travel well to other countries and that's something to to think about um or even within the country yes absolutely it may just have such a sort of niche regional or, or or just genre type of feel that you, you it's not going to translate well which is fine I, I i actually um came across a, a filmmaker who spent ten thousand pounds on a feature film and she recouped it all in one screening so she recouped the total cost of her film because it had a strong local theme. She had something like 120 uh, local people who appeared in it. So obviously that first screening, they all brought their families, their, their, their friends. Whether it would translate to a wider audience, I don't know, because I, I don't think she's actually taken it wider than that. But the potential for making you think about ways of having a career that's actually sustainable by thinking a bit more laterally is something that's very important to filmmakers now. And, and again, that, that came up where pe- people were saying they're now very excited about the digital channels. I mean, not, not just the YouTube and Vimeos that everyone is watching uh, in the office, but, um, you know, the kind of developing uh, video-on-demand market in, in the US. Does it, does it impact on, what, on the sorts of things that you're doing? Oh, I mean... You know, I mean, gosh, funny enough, I've just come out of a meeting and where, you know, we've decided that my remit is going to change and that I'm actually not going to change, I'm going to add to it. And that actually, I'm going to look for titles that work purely for a VOD platform. It doesn't matter that they've got no theatrical potential in the cinema, but we know that there is a market for them on video on demand. So yeah, actually, it's, it's, a, it's really changed. I mean, we will still do films that are intended for the cinema, but... I'm now starting to go and look at other projects. It's a repeat, you know, someone who's as long in the tooth as me, although I was at an award ceremony the other day presenting a BAFTA award to Wolf Szczynski, who was 100 years old, and I swear I was the youngest person in the room. Then I went over to the Rushes uh, Awards, which I was a judge on, and I realised I'm the oldest person in the room. But uh, I think it's a sort of repeat of when video came along. You had video-only product, as it was called in the business, and you had TV-only films and so on and so forth. So distribution changes, but the fundamentals don't. And everybody, I remember when video came in, everybody thought, oh, it's going to be the you know fantastic for independent film, for art films and blah, blah, which it was for about three years. You know, Evil Dead, which we distributed, Nightmare and so on. But actually, of course, the, the studios came up and it became like the other mediums, but a wider selection. It's the same with the net. Cameron, was was there anything else that, that you took from that session? I, I mean, I was astonished. I, like when it, it almost ended with Ben Pugh sort of like uh, revealing that although the distributors had made money on Shifty, it, like as I understood it, he had cash investors who hadn't hadn't made their money back simply because of the way that the payments were divided up. So, was I mean, was that a surprise to you? Or? 
I think what it what it was was a prime illustration of how you have to have a good lawyer. You know, as Nick was saying earlier, it's a reality check. That that's the that's the thing where if if you're going into filmmaking thinking that you're going to reap huge profits, it's very useful to hear someone's actual real tales of how things can work out. And and I think again the value of of, a, of a, an event like this is. You know, you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. You can, if you listen to other people's experiences, you can actually learn from them so you don't make those same mistakes yourself. I think one thing that is really, really valuable for producers and filmmakers is to understand recoupment of film. Because I think the one thing is that... What's recoupment? The the revenues coming back into a pot of money that is then dispersed. I think that a lot of filmmakers is, you know, you look at box office figures and it goes, oh, this film took $45 million or this film took 10 million quid. Now, the film company doesn't get 10 million quid. Well, the taxman gets the first bit. The taxman gets 20% VAT and then there's a percentage split. So that's 10 million gone already. The distributor has the right to recoup any amount of money that it's spent by acquiring the film. It's allowed to recoup it's allowed to recoup any money it's spent marketing it before any money is paid through to anybody else. So it's really, really worth understanding just the financials of the film industry so that you don't at least you go in with your eyes wide open. It might not be the best news you've ever heard, but at least you know what the deal is and that you can then negotiate the best deal and, that you can. And again, you know, what one of one of the points that uh, that, that, that that session almost seemed to be ended up making was that um, often you're making a first film for your career to use as a calling card to, to work on more projects or perhaps doing genre pieces to, to make money. Is that a very deep divide? Is it possible to do both? I mean, as the audience have heard already, I'm old. Uh, but I saw this when I was like five years old. If you want to make money out of the entertainment business, which includes film, you have to have runaway hits. That's just the way it is. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a book or it's a this or it's that. And it has to be a bigger runaway hit with films because they cost more money. Even low-budget films cost more money. So, you know, Shifty was not a runaway hit. It was a critically very well-received film that did some business. You know, so you need a real runaway if you're going to make money. Otherwise, it's what we normally call a wash. And the great thing about genre, you know, listening to to Ben the other day, you know, about Kill List, cost 6,000 quid, or Your Friend, you know, where it costs 10,000 quid, then, of course, you're going to be straight into profit. It might not be a big profit, but, you know, you get your money back. And it was quite interesting with Ben because he's, you know, he has a sort of semi-commercial background. He was a marketing honcho on the internet in the early days of the internet. You know, he understands business as well as being a, a very cool writer and director. So for the majority of filmmakers, think about making a really cool film that the critics will love, that'll do a little bit of business, and it, it becomes your pathway to other films where at the very least you'll get paid well and at the most of course they can be I was going to say if hit. you look at what Ben Pugh's doing now they've gone to on to Welcome to the Punch you know they've moved from 120,000 budget at microwave to 5 million pound budget maybe higher because as Nick said it's a wash it was critically acclaimed everybody thought that Rani McCreevy was the second coming of Christ 
including me, because I tried to buy it and didn't guess it, so I'm only slightly sulking. And it allows you to move on to the next thing, when, as you say, you get properly paid, Ronnie gets all the resources that he wants in terms of a director, and it allows you to move on to the next thing. So I think if you set out and think your first film's going to make money, I think that's a rather naive and slightly unrealistic expectation, but do it so that the next one is your payday. Sadly, that's all we've got time for today. But if you're looking for even more advice on making a short film, BAFTA has lots to help you. Look out for a dedicated short section on BAFTA Guru coming this autumn, where there'll be lots of useful tips and info for short filmmakers looking for inspiration. Don't forget that all the events we've discussed here are available at bafta.org guru and to share on soundcloud.com. And you can get all the latest news on upcoming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on bafta.org. Plus, if you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast, please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org. So, my thanks now to uh, Nick Powell, Karen Hope and Julia Short. My name is still Dave Green. The producer of this was uh, Matt Hill. And now stop listening to podcasts and go and actually make that thing you're always going on about. Bye. Thanks for listening to this BAFTA podcast. Remember, you can always stay in touch with us. On Twitter, we're at BAFTA and on facebook.com forward slash BAFTA.